You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So here's a question for the week. Do you trust your bank? Since 2008, the answer for many of us has been, well, not so much. Every year, Gallup surveys Americans' confidence levels in a variety of U.S. societal institutions, banks being one of them. And this year's results tell us 30% of you have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in your bank. About a half of you have just some confidence, and a little under a quarter have little to none. This year's reading might have boasted the second highest level of confidence since the financial crisis, but there are a lot of different surveys out there. There's one from Bain and Company, which also tells us that U.S. consumers ranked PayPal and Amazon nearly as high as banks for trust with their money. And there are about half of us that are open to buying financial products from established tech firms. This sort of demand for alternatives has been growing. It will continue to grow as younger generations come along. And so we thought we need to have a conversation about banking. And we're going to do it with Lisa Servant. Lisa is professor and department chair of city and regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. You all know we are big Penn fans here. She wrote a great book, called The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. And it delves into the banking system and why Americans are looking for alternatives to traditional banks in growing numbers. Lisa, thanks so much for being with me today. It's great to be here. We have been looking so forward to this. So I threw out a bunch of surveys detailing the confidence that many of us don't have in our banks. What what do you make of this? How do you interpret these results? Um, I think that there are a lot of Americans who feel that, I mean, it's a combination of things. One is that people have found themselves paying fees or paying more money for banking products and services than they expected to. They're often caught by surprise. So there's a piece of that lack of confidence that's coming from personal experience. And another is that we've seen banks in the news over and over again, particularly since the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, with um, news of them misbehaving. You know, the Wells Fargo scandal is probably the most famous one where over a million sham accounts were opened for people without their knowledge. But there are many. And so I think those things combine to make people feel like Banks just are not trustworthy the way they used to be. Yeah, you know, I don't even think I've talked about this before on the air, but when my husband and I got 
our mortgage, Wells Fargo came in with the best rate. He was not a Wells Fargo account holder, and they made him open an account in order to actually get the mortgage, which we always felt like perhaps came under the heading of that scam. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that happens a lot. I know people who refuse to use Wells Fargo because of the even for mortgages, and they're a huge provider of mortgages. But I know I have a friend who um, bent over backwards, and it wasn't easy to find somebody who promised that they would never sell her mortgage to Wells Fargo. Wow. Those are some big steps. And I, and I say that as somebody who actually banks with them myself. They are one of the few banks in my small town of 7,000 people. So I just I just want to be upfront about that. I, I bank with them now and I uh, actually really like their online interface. But that's neither here nor there. The word unbanking appears in the title of your book. And, and we talk When we talk about unemployment, we also talk about underemployment. You say that a lot of us are underbanked. Can you explain what that is and how you mean it? Yeah, for sure. And I actually have a different take on it than probably most people. Um, So the words unbanked and underbanked became part of the general conversation after 2009, which is when the FDIC started doing a survey every two years. They called it the Survey of Unbanked and Underbanked Households. And what they found was that at that point, there were about 20% of Americans who they defined as underbanked, meaning they had a bank account, but they also were using alternative financial services like check cashers and payday lenders. And then another 8% were unbanked, meaning they had no bank account or credit union account at all. I should mention, uh, you know, when people talk about unbanking or unbanking, they usually group credit unions into that. Um, into that. I actually, um, I, I wanted to kind of twist, take the word and twist it on its head a little bit, um, because I felt like the the received wisdom after those surveys came out was, wow, we need to push everybody into a bank account because um, isn't it terrible that so many people are relying on other kinds of services? And what I found was that there were lots of other factors that were really pushing people, both economic and some of the things you've already talked about with lack of trust in banks and the rise in fees, um, that were pushing people away from banks. Um, Yeah. I'm surprised by the definition of an underbanked or unbanked consumer, including people who go to credit unions. I I mean, there are credit unions in this country, and, and there are thousands of them, but many of them provide the same vast array of products and services that you can get from a bank. Can you explain that? I think I wasn't clear. So the banks and credit unions are are lumped together. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to a credit union and you have an account at a credit union, you are considered banked. Exactly. Gotcha. I'm actually a huge fan of credit unions. I think they do a great job. I am as well, and they have a lot of new products and services that are bringing them technologically into the same arena as as many of the banks. Um, Tell us a little bit about your research. When you did research for your book, you worked as both a teller and a payday lender because you wanted to understand why and how people were turning to alternative financial services providers. I mean, that must have been fascinating. So take us through that. 
Yeah, it was fascinating, Jean. And the reason I did it was because I felt like there was uh, missing information in the story, right? You had all this kind of um, writing, policymakers in the popular media kind of saying like, wow, all these people don't have bank accounts. They're using these check cashers and payday lenders. They're paying way too much. They need bank accounts. Um, you know, so let's push them into banks. And I was kind of scratching my head and saying, you know, I work, I do most of my research is in low income neighborhoods. And that's the belief is, which is not exactly true, that most of the people who use these services are low income. And I thought, you know, people that don't have much money, don't waste their money, they know where every penny goes. And so it didn't make sense to me that people were making ignorant or irrational decisions by using these services or paying too much. And so I felt like the only way I could really get an answer and get to the bottom of the story was to get as close as I could. And that's why I worked as a teller and a loan collector. Um, and what I learned was that in most cases, people were making rational decisions about using those kinds of businesses instead of banks, even if those decisions on the outside look irrational and even if they were expensive. Let's talk about the cost because... The products that we see and we hear about at places like check cashers and payday lenders seem exorbitant. And they seem exorbitant because they are framed in terms of rates of interest that it seems like no rational person would actually pay. Did you come away thinking that these businesses were better than they've been portrayed to be? Um, in fact, I did. And I think it is important to make the distinction, although I should say at the outset, I'm not an advocate of these businesses. Um, I, uh, But I did find that in many cases, for many people, they were the best available option. Um, and I do think it's important to distinguish between check cashers and payday lenders. So let me talk about check cashers first for a second. Um, so, you know, one of the things I would see it when I was working at the teller window was that uh, someone would come in with a paycheck um, at, to cash it. I would cash their check, um, and the, the cost of cashing that paycheck at the time was almost 2%, 1.95% of the face value of the check. So I would cash their check give them the money minus the 2%. And then the other thing that we did at the check casher was we helped people pay bills automatically, uh, electronically. Mm -hmm. So I would see this person then fan their bills out in front of them, maybe their electricity bill, their phone bill, maybe a credit card bill if they had a credit card. And I could see them then, you know, taking that stack of cash and allocating some of it to each of those bills. And because I was at the window, I could also see that they weren't always paying their whole bill off, right? And I could see them kind of calculating, how much do I have to pay the phone company so that my phone doesn't get turned off? How much do I have to pay the electric company so that my lights don't get turned off? Um, and making that kind of calculation, and then whatever they had left was the money that they had to live on. Now, the way that most people look at that is they say like, okay, you paid 2%, of your check. And then you paid $1.50, which is what we charge for each of those bills. So right there, let's say you had four bills, that's $6 plus whatever it was to cash your check. And what it looks like is you just paid a lot of money. You could have saved that money. You could have put it in a bank. Um, what people told me when I interviewed them, which I did later after I stopped working behind the window, is they said, look, 
first of all, if I put that deposit that check into my bank, I'm not going to see the money for four or five days, right? Right. Because it takes that long to clear. I need that money right now to pay my bills on time, to buy food for my kids. And even if they did deposit that money and they started writing checks to pay their bills, there's a chance that by the, that check could hit the person they're paying before the ch their check gets deposited, right? And that's, you know, when you're living so close to the edge, the chance of getting a late fee or an overdraft is huge. And so all it takes is, you know, one miscalculation and then suddenly, boom, they're hit with a $35 overdraft fee. And they might get hit again in a few days or multiple ones if, if the bill was late. Um, if more of their, uh, if they overdrafted more than one time, suddenly they could be paying hundreds of dollars, which is way more than the maybe 10 bucks they spent at the check casher. You know, what you're talking about is this chronic financial insecurity among the the middle class. And, and it's a more prevalent problem than we have ever seen it before. That's right. And I think you're touching on another point, which is that Perhaps one of the things that surprised me most about this research was that even though when I worked in the South Bronx, um, which is where I did check cashing, it was one of the poorest zip codes in the country. Um, when I was doing uh, working at the payday lender in Oakland, California, and subsequent work I've done, it's not um, it's not the poorest of the poor. These are people who have jobs. Um, they often own their homes. They often have college educations. But it's that instability. Um, and that is something that has really affected people a lot. So um, Jacob Hacker's done some work, a political scientist, who found that income uh, volatility has doubled over the past 30 years, meaning it's much, much harder for people to predict how much money is coming into their household. Um, and that comes from, you know, jobs that are Uber-like. Mm -hmm. uh, having two or three retail jobs or low-level service sector jobs, but it also comes from people getting less in terms of benefits um, or being put on furlough. Um, I heard so many stories about people who, you know, their first child cost them a $30 copay. They're working a public sector job. Um, people think of those as kind of the cream of the crop. And then three years later, they have a second child and they're charged thousands of dollars because their insurance has changed. So, yeah. I, you know, we, we tend to blame people for getting into these situations. But um, time and again, I saw that it was circumstances beyond their control. I want to talk a little bit about solutions and alternatives for people who would like to figure out a way to opt out of the traditional banking world and perhaps find something else. But before I do that, let me remind everybody that important conversations like these about the changing nature of our society are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat. That means knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup once a year, from understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be back with Lisa Servan, author of The Unbanking of America. So what we try to do on this show is bring women, even women who feel like I don't have any money to invest right now, but I'd love to get to a place where I do. We try to bring them along. Mm -hmm. What is your advice for 
people who are living a little bit too close to the edge right now, how do how do they get beyond that and and how do they use the services available in the world of banking but also alternatives to help them? Right. That's a great question and I love that you're helping women because women do have um, are often the breadwinner. They're 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 doing well. They're educated, but they have less. Con- they tend to have less confidence about money, and so it's great that you're you're working to build that confidence. Um, so there are a few things, and I guess one thing I should say is uh, we all tend to blame ourselves when we get into financial trouble. I think women do that more than men, and so one piece of advice that's not exactly uh, related to a product or service, but is to kind of give yourself a break. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. And kind of recognize that if you have this issue, probably other people do, too. And in the cases that I uh, dealt with in interviewing really hundreds of people, oftentimes it wasn't their fault. Um, There's this phenomenon of money shame that people have. It's heartbreaking. So beyond that, I would say, first off, make sure that you're banking in a place that where you feel like they uh, the bank reflects your values and also can save you money. Um, And so I think, you know, I really do advocate for people using credit unions. Often um, local banks, too, um, tend to provide better service um, because they're rooted in the local community. There's a great website called banklocal.info where you can see the banks that are near you, how much they reinvest in the community, et cetera. Oftentimes people just feel really good doing that. And Um, You know, you mentioned having that kind of face-to-face support. I think one thing that's happening a lot, and certainly local banks and credit unions are doing this, is that they're, for example, allowing you to use ATMs and other services at other banks and places and reimbursing you for those charges. So you don't necessarily need a brick-and-mortar bank um, that's in your neighborhood, unless you really like that ability to be able to go and talk to somebody in person. Um, I also like USAA. If you have any member of your family who's been in the military, they're known for giving very good service. I actually use USAA and I like them a lot. Beyond that, I think there are some really great tools and apps that people can use that can really help them manage their money, perhaps keep an eye on things like their credit score. Mm -hmm. Credit Karma is an app that many people I interviewed use, and I think it's a good one where you can actually look at your credit score on a regular basis. They'll give you tips for how to increase your credit score. Um, And as we know, you know, the credit score wasn't really used until almost 1990. And now people use it, employers use it, people you're renting apartments from. And so while I disagree with that, it's the ultimate um, form of judging people it's used. And so you need to really take care of your credit score and credit karma can help with that. You are singing our song. We like to tell people that they are not their credit score. It's just a snapshot of where you are right now, and you can totally change it just by a little bit better behavior over an extended 12 to 24-month period of time. I saw in the uh, U.S. Treasury's most recent report that the Treasury is now actually encouraging what it calls responsible innovation and is taking a look at non-bank financial institutions specifically for short-term small-dollar lending. What do you think about the potential there? I think there's a lot of potential. I mean, I I would like to see, uh, honestly, I would like to see banks and credit unions doing more of those kinds of loans. They used to do them. And unlike a payday lender, um, they actually, your bank has a lot of information about you that should greatly lower the risk 
right? So what the argument that payday lenders make when they're making these loans is that they don't really know you. They're giving you a loan that they give you in five minutes. Therefore, it's risky and they have to charge you a hugely high fee. Key Bank is a bank, a super regional bank. I don't know if they're in your area, but they actually have started giving um, small dollar short term loans to people that are their customers. And I think more banks could do that. There are lots and lots of people who are running into those shortfalls where they need an infusion of cash pretty quickly. But there are other lenders out there, too, that are just both for-profit and non-profit. One that's really interesting is called Opportune, um, based in, in California. And they also do small-dollar loans. They're for-profit, but they do it at a much lower rate than normal payday lenders. Um, I also think there are other apps. There's one called Even that's really interesting that helps people smooth out their income if it's volatile over the course of a year. It's so important. We get question after question from people who are working in the gig economy or who have a business of their own that's just on the way up and the income is just not level. And so having, we tell people how to do it on pencil and paper, but having an app that does it for you is really helpful. They actually, what even does is they they figure out like if you, let's say you need $12,000 to meet your expenses every year. And on average, you make $1,000 a month, but for a couple months in the winter, it might be 500 and then a couple months in the summer, it's 2000 They actually help um, kind of pad your account when you're flush and um, give you more when you're not flush in order to smooth that and make sure you have what you need. Um, so that's super interesting. That's great. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of fintech companies that are really experimenting right now that are socially responsible and are really trying to uh, recognize the challenges that people have right now. Well, it's a really important topic. Thank you for the quality of the research that you did. It's really remarkable. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Where can our listeners find you? Um, I have a website. It's called lisaservon.com. I also have a tab there called Move Your Money. If people are interested in moving their money from where they are now to another place, a lot of my writing is there. And um, people can find my book, The Unbanking of America, pretty much anywhere. Thank you so much. We will look forward to having you back. Thanks so much, Jean. And we will be right back with Mailbag. Kelly is with me in the studio. That was a little bit of a different conversation for us. But I'm glad we had it. I am too. I think sometimes we don't dig into the details about services that we use every day that are so important. Mm -hmm. And I I noticed you smile when I mentioned where I bank. (laughs) Um, But I have to say, I have, because I live in this small town, I know my tellers. Like, my kids went to school with their kids, and they have helped me when I, you know, put a check into the—I shouldn't say this because I'm going to get somebody in a lot of trouble, but I actually deposited a check into the machine without signing the back of it, and they're (gasps) supposed to send it through many, many, many channels, and— you know, and it's supposed to take a long time. And they were just, I said, I just did this. They're like, we'll get it for you. That's so great. Yeah. You're not so, going to get anyone in I, trouble. Well, I'm not going to say who did it. No, so no. So there you go. But I was I was eternally grateful. Wow. Yeah. And see, I've never had that experience with a bank. I grew up in Phoenix, which is 
big city. A big city. And Lisa writes in the book that she has a similar or she had a similar experience to you when she was growing up, like going to the bank with her mom and her dad. It was a community experience. Mm -hmm. The tellers knew her even. She did it every they did it every week as a family on the same day at the same time. That just wasn't my experience growing up. But working on this episode, it got me wondering, like, do I trust my bank? And I've never really thought about it. And I asked my friends, too, and they haven't really thought about it either. I think Wells Fargo got our attention, those headlines. But when it comes to the banks that we bank at, as long as it's serving us, it's working. I actually think in some ways we trust it more. Like, I... We deposit checks by snapping a picture. Right. Some of us deposit checks by just putting them in the machine. There's no, you know, where's the rest of the paper trail? Well, should I be more thoughtful about where I bank? I mean, I, you know, this this gets into a whole other idea of, like, am I getting the most out of my money at this bank? Well, I think that's a really important question right now as interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. So we know that when it comes to interest rates going down, they move very, very quickly. And financial institutions, you know, credit cards, it all mm-hmm. moves very, very quickly. When they're going up, you know. Not so much. <laughs> and, and you probably, if you are shopping with a large bank and you wanted to do better on your deposit, you absolutely could. I mean, there you go to a, a website like Bankrate mm-hmm. or Go Banking Rates, and you search for the best savings rates, and you can get, you can easily get ten, twenty, sometimes more times the interest that you're getting now. Because my, my many eyes are people are everyone. well, many people are still getting point one or two percent. That might be me. Yeah. So I need to do some work. I need to quantify it because when when I see, like, how much more I could be earning, that's what will get me to move. Yeah. And maybe the news of interest rates rising, that's a good time for all of us to look. Well, and if you know you've got money in savings mm-hmm. that you're going to keep in savings that, you know, I've got a, I've got a savings cushion, mm-hmm. it is not in Wells Fargo. It's at Capital One where I get a better rate of interest. It used to be the ING Orange account, you know, and that's how they got people was by, by – um, offering a more competitive rate of interest, Ah. but doesn't have an ATM card. And if I want to get at the money, I have to transfer it back to my brick-and-mortar bank and then take it. That's a good layer of protection from yourself, though. Exactly. Exactly. I love that layer of protection. I use it myself. Yeah. So we've got questions. We do. Our first question this week is from Julie. She writes, I'm getting ready to invest for my retirement at 59 years old. I know, very late to the party. I just went to Charles Schwab yesterday for information on an IRA and was wondering if you preferred that over a Roth account or if there were any other suggestions, planning on investing around $800 a month. Okay. So... I do not have a calculator in front of me, but if you are 59 and a half, you can put up to $6,500 a year into an IRA. 65 divided by 12 is? Oh, I'm not your calculator either. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think you can't put that much in is my answer yeah. to the question. And so I would say... Max out what you can put into. I think it's it's closer to. I'm still trying to do it. It's closer to like fifty five hundred dollars a month is what you can can put in. If you are able to do more, and it sounds like you absolutely can do more, then look for other ways to invest with tax 
advantages. So the the IRA and the Roth IRA both have tax advantages in that your money grows tax deferred. The IRA, the traditional account, also gives you a tax deduction for making your contribution. Because you're so close to retirement, my guess is that the IRA is better for you than the Roth, Um, although you may want to mix it up and and do a combination, which is totally fine. Um, Look at a health savings account. If you've got a high deductible health plan and are eligible to put several thousand dollars a year into a health savings account, that money can grow tax-deferred. You can get a tax deduction, I believe, for making that contribution. And when you pull it out and use the money for medical expenses in retirement, you pay no taxes. So that's a really good way to flesh out the rest of that $8,000 if this is something that you're eligible for. And if you're not eligible for it, don't let it stop you from investing the rest of the money. Just put it in a discretionary taxable account and invest it in line with your goals. Great. And we'll do one from... And and one more thing. (laughs) (laughs) And one more thing. 59 is not too late, right? Anything that you do today is better than doing it tomorrow. Better late than never. Absolutely. Even to a party. All right. Next one. (laughs) And we know where Kelly's head is at. (laughs) Next, we'll do one from Anna Marie. I'm a teacher in a state with an underfunded pension plan. Because of that, I signed up for the defined contribution plan and not the defined benefit plan when I started my job over a decade ago. Even though I won't receive a pension, I'm not eligible to contribute to Social Security through my job and will not receive any Social Security benefits. I'm single and in my mid-40s. I have two questions. First, I'm putting away as much as I possibly can into supplemental retirement accounts and my Roth. But I'm wondering, should I invest more aggressively since I will need more money in retirement? Or should I invest more conservatively because I will need more security in retirement? Is this something that I should take into account when I choose my bond stock allocation? I'm at 75 stock, 25 bond. And second, when I look at savings calculators like the Fidelity suggestions for saving goals, four times your income at 45, six times your income at 50, how would I adjust their guidelines for somebody who will not receive Social Security? Well, not receiving Social Security or a pension means you have to save more. Yeah. Um, but here's what I want you to do. This was an incredibly detailed question. There are a lot of factors in this mix. I want you to ask your colleagues for names of financial professionals that they have talked to who are familiar with this plan, this program, and I want you to go sit down with somebody. Um, You could also sit down with an advisor who manages your retirement plan because chances are you'll have access to that person for free. And do an actual plan. Figure out what it's going to cost you to live when you want to retire. Figure out how many more years you're going to work. Figure out how long your money will last. Figure out if there are ways for you to supplement the income that will be coming out of your plan by working part-time once you're in retirement. These are not questions that I can answer sitting here because I don't know. I can I can look at the numbers that you've sent me, but I don't know enough about your life. But a financial advisor who is clued in to your actual situation can help. And it may be 
if you find that you don't have enough, that you have to make other decisions like looking at where you're living and if you could change that and live a little less expensively to provide you with more of a cushion. But I'd do it sooner rather than later. And if you do decide to use an advisor that costs you a little bit of money, I would just chalk that up to the expense of getting the right answers. Okay, we'll do one more from Nicole. I'm 26 years old and work in New York City and pay 1100 a month to live in Hoboken. Wow, that's a similar profile to mine. Uh, so she says around 13200 a year. Okay. I'm thinking about purchasing a house and have been looking in West Orange. Which is near Hoboken, New Jersey. West Orange is in New Jersey. Okay. There are many oranges, yeah, by the way. There's so a South Orange. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, taxes in this area range from 8000 to 12000 So I'm wondering if I should live in Hoboken another year and let my money keep growing in the stocks, mutual funds I have in Fidelity or purchase a house. I should mention that I do not have any debt and I hope to be married in the next few years. Financially, is it ideal for me to take this on now or should I continue to rent? Additionally, when I do purchase a house and make a down payment, what percentage is ideal to leave in my savings account, not including IRAs? Again, this is a complicated question. And the, the, the question that I have coming out of this question is about the marriage in the next few years. And if when you get married, you would need to move. Because one thing I do know for sure is that you don't want to buy something that you're going to live in for less than five years. Um, People sometimes do that betting on the appreciation, but the cost of the transaction just to close can be about 2%, plus you've got the cost of moving, plus you've got the cost of furnishing. So it sounds like your life may be a little too up in the air for buying at this point to make sense. But I would, again, Financial advisor. Financial advisors are wonderful at points of transition. There are a lot of people who are like, whoa, Jean, I do not want another person on my long-term payroll. And I get that. You may not need a wealth manager. You may not need a financial planner who picks up the phone and calls you every time the stock market hiccups. But at these inflection points of your life where you are looking at a big change. When my ex-husband and I were going to purchase our first house, we sat down with a financial advisor because we wanted to know, could we afford this? What would that do to our lifestyle? What would that do to our other options? And there are costs, I guarantee you, involved in owning a home rather than renting that you are not thinking about. My air conditioning just went, and we had to replace. I know, and it's really hot out. Yeah, so stuff happens. It's on you. I'm not saying don't buy when you're ready to buy and you know that you'll be someplace for at least five years because I like the idea of paying off a mortgage and having that chunk of cash at the end of the road. I just am not sure if you're there yet. But also kudos to being 26 years old. I know. And already thinking about buying property. Uh, My friends and I were talking about this recently, and the idea of purchasing anything, purchasing real estate in the near future, we actually might want to focus on purchasing our second homes. A lot of people, again, and this is a podcast now all about my ex-husband, but he did that first. (laughs) He wasn't sure he wanted to stay living in New York City, so he bought a country house, and he Mm -hmm. bought that First. Yep, and then use it as a rental property and get that stream of revenue in. Yep. Or not. Or not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, depending on how you decide to use it. It's also, if you're living in an urban area where real estate prices have gone a little crazy, it's a, it's a way to afford to buy something. Mm. 
Right now I'm picking out headboards for my new apartment that I'm renting, so I'm not there yet, but... Congratulations on your move, though. Very, very exciting. Thank you, everyone, for your questions, and thank you, Jean. Thank you, Kelly. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. We are heading into the dog days of summer. In fact, we are already there. And what we've learned is that the U.S. economy kicked into high gear this spring. Second quarter economic growth came in at an annual rate of about 4.1%. That's the fastest pace in almost four years. This should warrant some celebration. The economy is in good shape. Unemployment is near an 18-year low. Factories are seeing more orders and exports are surging. But... You knew there was a but, didn't you? Economists are saying that it won't last. They're generally predicting slower growth in the second half of the year. By that time, the effects of the tax cut will wear off. Rising interest rates will weaken consumer spending, and things will be more expensive due to the tariffs imposed in the midst of this trade war. So what do we take away from this? If you're going to have a party, a celebration for the U.S. of A, keep it short. We were heartened by the news that the savings rate in America is actually double what economists originally thought. However, it may still not be enough to get you to a comfortable retirement or to the point where you're meeting your other goals. So instead of focusing on the capital E economy, focus on controlling your own personal economy instead. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lisa Servan for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I went on there, Kelly, the other day. We've got close to 400 reviews. That's amazing. I know, but we would like to hit 400 and keep on going. So Mm -hmm. leave us a review because we like hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record our podcast out of the wonderful CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary. We'll talk soon.